how much of kind of the gender pay gap or the lack of African-American CEOs in, you know, in, in the U.S., how much is that caused by, for example, direct discrimination versus the fact that, you know, African-Americans have just don't have the network to get into the pipeline in the first place, even though they would be equally qualified to hold a position. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at how economists measure systemic discrimination. The way they do that has changed over the last decade or so. And our guest today is in the forefront of some of that change. Alex Imas is an associate professor of behavioral science and economics at the Booth School of Business. He's also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and his focus within behavioral economics is on how we make decisions, particularly how what's happened to us in the past affects our decisions about risk. Alex Imas, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you. I'm really, I'm really glad to be here. So let's start with how economics typically views discrimination, which is somebody does something to someone. It's a direct action by an individual, right? You take that action and then you apply economic tools to it to study how it affects broader issues like the workplace, the economy writ large. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. So kind of the classic example of discrimination and how it's been studied in economics is, for example, you have two resumes that are very similar, essentially, you know, all of the same qualifications, same education level, same work experience, and you send like 10,000 of these resumes to different firms. And the only thing that differs is that on the top of the resume, whether it comes from kind of a stereotypically white name or a stereotypically African-American name, and you look at callback rates. So the idea here is to measure look, is there disparate treatment in the sense of are white names going to be more likely to get a callback and therefore be invited to an interview, get into that pipeline of the labor force than uh, the same resume with an African-American name? And that's the, that's the uh, famous study by my colleague here, uh, Sendhil Molanathan and Marianne Bertrand. They ran this study and they found a large difference in callback rates between these two resumes. And again, the only thing that differed is the name. But the kind of key idea is when you're thinking about discrimination, you're trying to hold everything constant. So very similar people approaching uh, a, an employment opportunity, applying to an Airbnb, trying to get a house, trying to get a mortgage, trying to get their house refinanced. Keeping everything constant is race or gender or another protected characteristic driving disparate treatment among these evaluators. All right. So then what's missing from that equation. Why isn't that enough? So what me and my co-authors try to argue is that the things that you're controlling for on the resume, such as how much education people have or whether they have an internship or not, those might have discrimination already baked in. So one example is, for exa- for is, is internships. So internships, we know, are kind of driven by people's networks. So, you know, you hear, oh, there's an internship at this company. You should apply for it. Then this person applies for it. They get the internship. Then they're, uh, you know, going into the labor force. And on their resume, they have a line that says, hey, I spent the summer working for Goldman Sachs or something like that. 
And the idea is that uh, typically the way you would study discrimination is you would take CVs or you would compare people that both have that internship on their resumes. And you say, here is how people are, are treated given the exact same information. And something that we argue is that discrimination can, can enter uh, things indirectly through the channel of what what other stuff is on the resume. So for example, if African-American uh, uh, applicants have smaller networks or networks that don't include people who would offer them internships, they're going to be less likely to have that internship on their CV. And so the, basically there's going to be a difference not only in the name, but there's also going to be difference in what else is listed on the CV and what else is listed in the CV is also a function of discrimination. In sociology, we're not the first people to kind of think about this. In sociology, uh, there's... A, 40, 50 years of thinking about systemic discrimination, namely discrimination kind of entering other factors of, uh, of, of a person's resume or a person's characteristics other than just their race or their gender. I'm curious, why doesn't or hasn't the field of economics traditionally looked at that kind of systemic problem versus direct discrimination? Because, I mean, I have to say it seems obvious to me that particularly when we're talking about discrimination, racial, gender, what have you, that it's pretty obvious that systemic issues are at play, historical issues are at play. Like, of course it's systemic, um, but I guess the issue here is maybe the measurement of that? Yeah, so I think um, part of it is that, I, in, in my you know, personal opinion, is that a lot of economics is focused on establishing causal effects, so X causing Y. Mm. And therefore, when thinking about discrimination, the key uh, relationship that you're trying to establish is the causal effect of race, for example, on disparate treatment. What we kind of do in the paper is to say these this non-causal channel, what we're calling systemic discrimination, you can measure it. And that's kind of the, the goal of the paper is establishing tools in order to be able to measure this non-causal indirect channel and to say we can unpack disparate outcomes into these two factors, one that economists have really been focused on, this causal direct effect of race and gender on, on disparate treatment. And the second part is, look, uh, people may, may differ not only on you know, the, these characteristics, but they may differ on their level of education, um, the sort of zip codes that they live in. So, for example, redlining has a huge effect on, uh, sure, uh, on, on housing on, on housing and housing. There also, you know, you have uh, this. This is a very relevant issue now and stuff like FICO scores and credit scores. They don't necessarily use race as an input, but they use things like zip code as an input. Right. Right. And renting versus owning. Exactly. And these sorts yeah. of things, because of historical injustices, they have racism and discrimination baked in. So these are like when you calculate one of these scores, they're, uh, you know, they maybe use racial race neutral rules because they don't directly have that input of race into the calculation. But they're using other things where race is baked in through historical injustices. And our paper tries to kind of pick that up formally and try to measure that explicitly how much of disparate treatment and disparate outcomes is actually driven by kind of this total effect of, of discrimination. Okay, so let's talk about how you go about finding a way to distinguish direct from systemic. And, and then, of course, you also have to distinguish between an individual performing a discriminative act and an institution doing it, right? So, so, so where did you start? Uh, I assume by defining what discrimination looks like beyond the obvious. 
Right. So kind of our, our starting point is to think about there's a uh, there's a initial qualification for a particular position or for a t- particular opportunity. We hold these sorts of things constant. So uh, and and then what we, we what we look at is decompose total discrimination, which is captured by this sort of direct causal effect of race on treatment and the systemic component of how an equally qualified individual, for example, wasn't able to get the sort of opportunities that somebody who's white or in the majority group was able to get, and therefore the effect of this lack of opportunity had on on, on the sort of the outcomes that they're facing. So one way, and, and by just yeah. to clarify, by by decompose, you basically mean break down. Break right? down, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, how much of um, kind of the gender pay gap or um, a callback rate or the lack of CEO, the lack of African American CEOs in you know in in the U.S. How much is that caused by, for example, direct discrimination versus the fact that you know African Americans have just don't have the network to get into the pipeline in the first place, right? Even though they would be equally qualified to hold the position. Okay, so you so you were talking about how you start measuring that breakdown. So one technique that we've developed is something we call an iterated audit. We try to kind of say how much discrimination is in a, a pipeline or uh, the dynamics of a, in, a, in a particular setting. And what I mean by that is we send out resumes just as the way that I had described before, one with an African-American versus a white name. And we see in our study, we see something like a two-to-one difference in callback rates. So white wow. resumes are significantly more likely to get a callback than, than African-American resumes, which are exactly the same. The second stage would be to create three separate types of resumes. One type of resume is one with with a white name, but this white-named resume has a line on it with the job that we had previously applied for. We kind of assume that they got a callback and they were able to get the job. And let's say the white resumes in the first study, 30% of them we're getting a callback. So in the next round, 30% of our resumes have a line on it that they have, they have had that job. We have a second set of resumes with a black name. And there, we also emulate how many callbacks those got. So if it's a two-to-one ratio, 15% of those resumes would have a line that said, look, they have had this job. And then the third set of resumes would be the exact same resume as the white resume. So 30% of them have, have this previous job, but the name is an African-American one. And then we send these three types of resumes out to the companies and measure callback rates again. But now it's at a different level. Now these people, have, some of them have had an entry-level job, and we see their callback rates. And this allows us to capture two things now. It allows us to capture direct discrimination by comparing the exact same resumes. Both have 30% entry-level jobs. But it also allows us to capture the second systemic factor by comparing the 30% resumes with the 15% resumes. Because now we can capture how much does this difference in the ability to land an entry-level job affect kind of the, the process of proceeding in the pipeline and going through the industry and getting promoted and getting into managerial roles and things like that. And what we find is that, look, we, we also capture direct discrimination at every level. But systemic just has a, such a huge impact. The fact that now there's a 15% gap or two-to-one ratio of having an entry-level job has a huge effect on callbacks. Then let's talk about uh, how these findings can be applied by those who are 
doing the hiring, uh, doing the admitting to college. What would you recommend to those who are in the position to, to change policy, to change procedure, to make sure that systemic discrimination doesn't essentially overshadow any progress in tamping down on direct discrimination, right? Because there are so many programs that are trying to address that, that direct discrimination, but that then don't really look at the broader picture. It really is going to be uh, something that companies and policymakers and you know admissions uh, deans and things like that will need to carefully weigh. So one element that I hope our paper contributes to is measurement as far as being able to say, like, this is the extent of systemic discrimination that should be reversed. And part of that could be applying affirmative action policies in order to reverse systemic discrimination. So that's one policy lever that you have. It really is going to be dependent on the context, the objective function or the objective of the evaluator of, of the school and things like that, um, and the sort of things that they're weighing. But it, and, uh, and it's going to be very context dependent. But the idea is that systemic discrimination should be taken into account. And there are ways of, uh, of, of reversing it. And the psychology is going to be really important there because it's, it's hard to think about systemic discrimination for people. Just you, you tell people, look, there's systemic discrimination in this setting. That's, that's actually something that we have in our paper. We, we tell some, in our experiment, we tell some of the evaluators, look, there's actually differences in callback rates based on race. Uh, and the pool of African-American uh, applicants might be actually more qualified because they were uh, discriminated against. And there, that decreases direct discrimination, but that still does nothing for systemic discrimination because right. it's really hard to psychologically think about it. Um, and uh, th that hopefully our paper kind of enters the conversation and future research can, um, can progress on that. We've been mostly talking about a specific study from 2022, but I know you've been researching this issue for years. Um, I wonder if if you feel like you've seen any improvements over that time um, or, or not, or is this something that is so seemingly intractable that progress is going to be very, very slow? This issue is being talked about a lot. So you hear this in, in conversations. So something like systemic discrimination is certainly much more sure. in the conversation now than it used to be. There are so many uh, researchers that have been working on uh, systemic discrimination. And finally, it's now being part of the conversation. Again, our paper is mostly focused on measurement rather than kind of, you know, defining systemic, systemic discrimination to begin with. My guess is that it's going to be slow because it requires something that's much more difficult to do than fixing individuals' actions, which is kind of direct discrimination is all about, look, this individual is discriminating, let's, let's change that. Systemic discrimination is harder because it really does, in many ways, require institutional or systemic change. And that's slower, that's harder to convince stakeholders to do, uh, but that, that kind of is part of the problem and therefore it needs to be part of the solution. And that's where showing people where the problem is hopefully prompts some action, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. What are you studying next? What's coming up for you? So a lot of my other work uh, is on different topics, like on kind of more basic kind of financial decisions and how people react to information, how people make decisions on the stock market and things like that. Primarily my work on the kind of the psychology of people's decision making. I'm a behavioral economist by, by trade. Um, so 
one of the papers that I have uh, in the pipeline now is on when do people overreact or underreact to information. So they get a piece of information. Some people become too pessimistic. Some people become too optimistic. But other people don't even kind of almost ignore the information to begin with, and they kind of don't even act on it. They act on it a little bit in the right direction, but not all the way. And there's a large literature in behavioral economics and psychology kind of documenting these things. And our paper kind of tries to say, look, in these contexts, people are more likely to overreact to information. In these contexts, people are more likely to underreact to information. And one of the um, results that we have is that when a setting is complicated, like the stock market, you're trying to figure out what you saw the price of Apple go up. Is it going to keep going up? Is it going to keep going down? That's a complicated problem. Yes, it is. It's a complicated problem. If anyone could figure that out, they would make a lot of money. (laughs) So we can't say, look, here's how to make money on the stock market, but we can say that people are more likely to overreact to information in complicated situations, and they're more likely to underreact to to information in less complicated situations. So when they kind of know what's going on, they get a signal, they interpret it with some lack of attention, cognitive noise, things like that, they're going to be likely to underreact. Whereas if it's a complicated setting, the price of Apple goes up, you kind of try to simplify the problem for yourself by focusing on a scenario that's very extreme. Oh my God, next year, Apple's going to completely blow up and you overreact to that price increase. And you either overinvest or or massively underinvest, depending on what that price is. So that's kind of one of the results of that paper. Uh, And that's that's coming down down the pike for me as well. So I'm curious, um, you're a behavioral economist uh, who mostly studies finance, uh, financial decision-making. What brought you to discrimination and systemic discrimination? So I'm I'm a behavioral economist uh, in the sense that I, a lot of my work is focused on finance, but I'm really interested in when people, um, when psychology enters into their decision-making in the sense that their beliefs, for example, are wrong. So that's how I started on discrimination, is I, I have a paper with uh, Aislinn Boren and Michael Rosenberg. Um, so when we started working on a project, I, be, I believe it was 2016, thinking about the dynamics of discrimination, like how discrimination uh, evolves over different evaluation decisions. And part of that project was to show that by looking at how discrimination evolves over different deci- over, over different stages, you can say, hmm. look, actually it's driven by the fact the evaluators have incorrect beliefs about people's ability in this setting. Particularly, we were able to say that, look, if you have a setting, let's say men and women start on something like GitHub or a programming platform, they start out, they have no experience, they enter their, their code or they ask a question, and let's say you see women are less likely to get a positive evaluation or they're less likely to get their code accepted than men. So you have this initial level of gender discrimination. What that's going to do is translate to publicly observable reputation. So on these online platforms, you have a reputation, how well you did in the past. And by looking at how discrimination interacts with how much reputation a person has can tell you, look, the evaluators on the platform are actually incorrect about how good men and women are. For example, if you see that as men and women get more and more reputation, when you look at high-reputation men and women, if you see that high-reputation women actually favored over men, you can say that the initial discrimination was driven by people thinking that w- women are much less able to do quality work than they actually are on this setting. So we have this as a kind of a mathematical result. And then we ran this big field experiment on something uh, called Stack Exchange, 
which is a big pl- Q&A platform for computer programmers and other sorts of developers, we ran an experiment. We, we actually varied the gender of the poster and their reputation on the setting and to show, look, men and women coming into this platform, women are vastly discriminated. But high-reputation women are actually favored. Hmm. The problem, obviously, is, and this is where the conversation started, is that there's much fewer high-reputation women to begin with because they're less likely to get that high reputation because they're getting discriminated against at every stage of that pipeline. And so that was the first thing. They've had to clear hurdles over and over and over again. Exactly. So that's kind of how I started in discrimination is to say, look, can we talk about people having incorrect or biased beliefs uh, in, in, in discriminatory settings. And that, that's kind of how things started, and that's, that's, where I'm, that's primarily where I'm working on now. Really interesting. Alex Emos, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.